As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome back to The Audible. I am Bruce Feldman, joined as always by Stuart Mandel. We are taping in the heart of Championship Week, and our favorite bracketologist, that's not Joe whatever his name is, that's, that's our own beloved Stu Mandel, I'm pulling him away from college hoops to jump back in his first love, his only real love, college football. Stu, what's going on? You know college football is my first priority for 49 weeks a year. This happens to be one of the weeks that basketball takes precedent. But, uh, look, I haven't uh, stopped paying attention to football. And actually, a couple interesting things stood out to us this week. Let's start with that since we're getting your almost undivided attention. What caught your eye? You know, on signing day, uh, I had Brian Kelly on the Audible. He had just done his first press conference with the local reporters in a while. And the big theme, both in that press conference and on my interview, was him taking ownership for their bad season last year, saying, it's on me. I did a poor job of coaching. He comes back uh, to start spring practice. And and now it turns out that, you know, that is now playing out in him – pretty much reinventing his entire coaching style. And this was also uh, laid out in greater detail by our friend Pete Thamel in a Sports Illustrated feature. Yeah, and hopefully we'll uh, we'll dig into more of that story and, and yoga and all those other things uh, in the next edition of The Audible. Um, so I ask you this. I feel like I'm more of a believer in Brian Kelly than you are as a coach a little bit. No, I, I've, I've been a believer. I've been, you know, I've always thought he's a pretty good coach. I mean, I was pretty critical last year. I thought he did a terrible job last year. He seems to agree. Um, and I would say the skepticism now is I've seen this a lot, right? Coaches, oh, I'm going to get more involved. It always deviates, right? Some coaches are like, I need to get more involved. I need to be more hands-on. Some coaches are, I got too bogged down in offensive play calling. I need to take a more macro. And I just don't know that that often works. Um, when can you think of an example of a guy who has pulled back the throttle and it has worked very well. And what's the one you're like, eh, that didn't work. Uh, obviously, when we think of, you know, I don't know if Les Miles ever talked about it and himself, but nothing ever changed. Right. You know, there's other examples. Dana Holgerson has been one who's been more involved and less involved. And I feel like it has paid off for the most part on that sense. Um, I can't think of too many other guys who are, you know, we see it with Gus Malzahn to me is, is a relevant example, right? Where is Gus hands-on? Is Gus the play caller? You know, Rhett Lashley's on the move. He's doing this. He's doing that. Um, Mark Rick during his last years at Georgia. Good, yeah. Play calling. 
That didn't work. Now he's at Miami. He's he's back to calling his own plays. Charlie Strong at you know on the other side of the mm-hmm. ball. You know, I, I think that worked a little bit. It didn't work enough, obviously, at Texas. Generally speaking, coaches are who they are. They know what they're doing. And I'm not saying Brian Kelly doesn't know what he's doing here, but this is a, this is a major, major change, right? So he's always been very heavily involved in the offense. He's surrendering control of that, not to somebody who's worked for them for a long time, but to Chip Long, who's coming in just this year. Uh, I thought the interesting quote was him saying that he got too – he spent too much time with fundraising and uh, just like non-football things. And now he's in the meeting rooms. He's with the players and conditioning. It, there's just, there's a lot. And that wasn't the only, obviously as a new defensive coordinator, it's just like basically as if you had started a program from scratch. Uh, we're going to go back to this default thing from a year ago. If you're doing your top 20 coaches in college football, I know he just, he just had a four and eight season. Is Brian Kelly making the top 20? Probably not, but that's a little bit of recency bias. I mean, we, you and I were both talking about a year ago at this time what a great coaching job he did overcoming mm-hmm. all those inter, inter, injuries and getting them to a 10-win season. Well, you know what? I think we're going to have to redo that list soon because I feel like we come back to it. It's a fun topic, and it's good to kind of always reevaluate this. I still think he probably is in the top 20, but he's on the fringe of it, I would say, at this point. It's funny that we're even considering this given that the fans there are just universally – not universally. A, a, they are loudly, obviously, unhappy with him. They want to fire him. Well, we just had a question where somebody called Jack Swarbrick the devil, basically, yeah. right? Well, I hate to so. keep interjecting basketball, but it's the top of mind right now. This is probably especially true for you since you follow this so closely. Were you surprised to learn that Ohio State basketball has reached the point where the AD has to put out a statement of support for Thad Mata? I'm not just for this reason alone. When I was at the Combine one night out, a number two guy under under Gene Smith at Ohio State was out, and I just we're just making small talk. I said, you know, because you follow because I follow all these Ohio State media, you kind of realize they're almost great in everything. You know, they're great in wrestling, they're great in this sport, you know, whatever. And it dawned on me because I had you know I've watched a little Big Ten basketball, and I'm like, wow, Ohio State is that bad this year, and it just seems so out of character. And I was like, you know, I'm sure there's a good answer for this, but I was trying to think of when was the last time Ohio State was this bad in a sport. I'm sure they are in some some sport I'm not paying attention to. But is that is that a one year blunder kind of thing or is this is this program been in decline for a while? They've they've been in gradual decline the last few years. They kind of bottomed out this year. But also we're talking about when I say bottomed out. If they had managed to get hot and win a couple of games in the NCAA tournament, they might have gotten them. I mean, the, in the Big Ten tournament, they might have gotten themselves at least in the bubble conversation. We're not talking about a nine and twenty-two season. I mean, I, I just think it's absurd. The guy, you know, two uh, Final Fours, a national championship game, many Big Ten titles, but you know, you have one or two bad years and everybody revolts against you. And I get that. Um, so my point is, if somebody's making a list of the top twenty basketball coaches, I'm sure he would be on it. And yet, there's a segment of, of Ohio State fans who want to fire him. And that's what we're dealing with with Ryan Kelly here. But again, whether he's never until this year, he's never he's been there. I don't know, like 15 years, 13 years. He's never had one losing season in Big Ten play. Not one. I mean, I believe he's a year removed from going like 11 and seven in Big Ten play. Yeah, he had. I'm looking at it right now. 11 and seven, 11 and seven, 10 and eight. And then he got then everything else was like 13 and five, 13. They're not recruiting as well as they used to. The fans are frustrated. I get it. Uh, But I. It's actually in basketball. I've seen many more cases where the 
program goes. I mean, Jim Beheim has had years where he didn't make the NCAA tournament. This is going to be one of them. And then a couple of years later, he goes to the Final Four. Uh, we don't necessarily see that as much in football. Uh, it does seem like once the program starts heading in the wrong direction, it's hard to get out of that. But part of that is that there's just not the patience to let them do that. Yeah, I mean, I, this looks like the equivalent of a six and six year, I would say, right, in college football. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. Well, probably a little less than that because they finished uh, 17 and 15, 17 and 15. But where they were in the Big Ten standings, they were pretty far down. Yeah, they're 10th. Uh, that's a lot of basketball talks, too. I had actually started talking about Brian Kelly again. I, I think we may have been <laughs> two different coaches at the same time. So what do you think? How do you think this Brian Kelly 3.0, as I saw somebody refer to it, I'm, I, don't, I don't know when it went from 1.0 to 2.0. Uh, how do you think it goes? I think he is a really good coach. I think it will bounce back. I think he made some good additions to the staff. We'll see how it goes with Chip Long. I mean, you know, he's a Mike Norvell guy. He doesn't have a ton of body of work. Um, you know, I, it's interesting because they're losing two quarterbacks. Brandon Winbush is a ton of, you know, this term I keep hearing a lot. And when I talk to other coaches, toolsy, not just about him. It's like means he has a big arm, means he's athletic, but we don't know you know, some of the nuances of the position. He's a, he's a really smart kid. And, you know, I think he'll, he'll do well on the system. What hurt them last year was they were pretty limited receiver wise. And so if they can, you know, build up some other options, obviously they weren't anywhere near as good on the offensive line. I think they'll have a bounce back year and now bounce back could maybe mean eight and four, but I think he's too good of a coach for them to have two really bad years. And I think the best sign, you know, if you're looking for a sign why they would get better is that, you know, and I know you and I are both fans of the advanced metrics that Bill Connolly does, that Brian Fremo does. Um, so they have their combined ranking, which is the S&P Plus rankings on Football Outsiders. And Notre Dame, despite being 4-8, and eight, was actually in their rankings, finished the season number 29. Like if, if they had, and you remember, they had so many last-second losses. If a few had gone their way, they probably weren't that far away from being a top 25 team. And just to show you... Um, that not all four and eight seasons are created equal. So that's where Notre Dame finished at four and eight. Now let's look up Oregon. Oregon, 78th. So they were just a plain bad team, whereas Notre Dame was a team that could have had a pretty decent season and it just went away from them. So that's often a ranking I look at when I'm looking for teams that could make a big jump the following year. Washington at seven and six was actually ranked fairly high in these uh, in these rankings last year, and it was a big reason why a lot of us thought that they would be much improved, and they certainly were. Okay, this is unfair of me to do it, but you kept me waiting, so I'm going to do it. Uh, so I have in front of me the 2017 Notre Dame schedule. Mm -hmm. Let's play Let's play this out. Uh, week one at home, Temple, new head coach, lost some good players we to the NFL. We can play this out, but I just want to note that because Notre Dame's schedule changes so much from year to year, it's really hard to like I, every year. I get it. I get it. When you think it, their schedule is going to be really hard, it turns out to be easy and vice versa. But okay, yeah. I Notre think they Day. will beat a Temple team that just lost their coach. One and zero with Georgia with a pretty stacked depth chart coming into Notre Dame Stadium week two. Well, that's going to be a real interesting kind of swing game because uh, both those teams have a lot to prove. I think I'm going to go Georgia. I'm going to go Georgia there too. Uh, week three at BC. That they should be able to win that game. They should win that game. They've had some upside losses to BC before, though, we should note. Yeah, so we're two and one now. Uh, next week at Michigan State, who's coming off a dreadful season. So Michigan State is an example of a team that had a bad record and was bad. 
And while I'm sure they'll be better, if we're saying Notre Dame's going to be better, then we'll give it to Notre Dame. All right, so that is now three and one. Next week at home, Miami, Ohio, I think we both agree, four and one. Mm-hmm. Then they have to visit North Carolina, no Trubisky. Um, hmm. I can't say I'm yet up to speed on what UNC looks like for next year. Uh, I'm going to go UNC. Okay, I'm going to go Notre Dame. There's our split. So I'm saying four, five and one, you're saying? Four and two. Four and two. And then by week, then they host Sam Darnold in USC. I'm going to say they lose that game. Likewise. Okay, then they host NC State the following week. Mm, yeah, they should win that. Yeah, NC State's got some studs on defense NC State now. State actually I don't know is that... another team that I think could be a surprise team next year. So that could go either way, but I'll give it to them. Okay. So where are we now record-wise? Uh, you would be 5-3, and three and, and I would be 6-2. and two. Okay. Then they have the Elko Bowl when they host Wake Forest. I will give them the win in that. Likewise. Then they go to Miami. I think Miami is, I don't know, Miami should have a, should figure out their quarterback situation by then. I'm going Miami. Okay, I would agree. Then they host Navy. Tough game for them recently, but uh, I'll pick Notre Dame. Me too. And then they visit you and Stanford. Taking Stanford in that one. Okay. So really the only area where you and I disagree on this is North Carolina. Yeah, and and uh, whether it's that game or NC State, you know, one of, so I ended up picking them to go seven and five, and you picked them to go eight and four. Yeah, you have them losing Stanford, Miami, USC, North Carolina, and Georgia. The interesting thing about that is that that one game difference would probably be the difference between them wanting to run them out of town or not. Um, but I also think that you know it's important to win. The best way he gets back on solid ground there is to beat a USC or Stanford to win one of those games they have against a high-end team. Yeah, that's true. Um, Okay, Stu, there's another interesting topic. With coaches making changes, and how about a a coaching change and a change in philosophy? And, you know, this is one of these examples where you hear lots of big talk and lots of enthusiasm and about work ethic and everything. And there seems to be a very big change in culture at – Texas with Tom Herman. Uh, what's been your read on it so far from the outside looking in? It seems like some of the very things that he did at Houston and in that environment that were considered cool and, and you know, reason why the players love him is now at Texas being held, you know, different standard of scrutiny. Yeah, no question. I mean, I think a couple of comments, you know, I saw a little bit of back and forth with Ed Oliver on social media. You know, I think you take some of these things with a grain of salt. And I didn't see the initial comments that Tom Herman had made where it was was praising Todd Orlando and also talking about how his defense coordinator who was with him at Houston and now obviously is with him at Texas, but also how they have way more talent here at Texas than they did at Houston. I don't think that's a stretch to think that they have I'm more sure talent. I'm sure that's true. But obviously, if you're at Houston, you don't want to hear that. Yeah. Now, the, the comment about Todd Orlando, and I'm not sure if he specifically said at Houston or maybe Todd Orlando has done this at Utah State and some other places where he's had a ways of making uh, chicken salad out of you know not, something that's not as, not as tasty. Um, to which point, Ed Oliver's... I guess it had said something to a local reporter where this year, this spring, there's a lot more coaching and a lot less yelling going on, which some people had taken that as a direct shot at the previous staff. They could have hired whoever, and, and you're always going to hear the players praise the current staff more than the old staff. Correct. You, have you ever heard a college football player say, yeah, we're not very impressed so far? 
I'm sure there's been some people who've been a little bitter at like transition, but they usually don't say it. And I think social media feeds this out. I mean, they don't put it out there publicly, but, um, you know, ultimately I think it's going to come back to how well he does at the beginning. And if that's the case, then, um, you know, I think you'll get a big buy-in. I think some of the comments maybe, uh, I forgot what it was Tom had said. Oh, you know what it was? It was about don't talk, you know, he didn't want the parents talking to the local media or something. Yeah, he came in and he tried to lay down the law with the media. He had a private off the record meeting with them where he basically kind of laid down the law. And then there was that thing. And I don't that that kind of baffles me because Tom's always been a media savvy guy. Obviously, we've dealt with him a lot, but it just doesn't seem like a great way to start your relationship with the new people who are going to be covering you. And frankly, it's interesting. You know, there are certain contingent of beat writers at certain schools that people might say are too soft on the program. And I think Texas is the exact opposite. I mean, they cover them with the scrutiny of an NFL team. Yeah, I don't know if I would go that far just because I'm not used to seeing what an NFL beat. You know, you see sometimes the knives are out more than that. Those guys wanted to see Charlie Strong do well because he's a nice guy and whatnot. But, I mean, the storyline of him, is he going to make it or not, really started really early in his tenure. And then, obviously, um, I don't know. I just see certain ones on Twitter kind of, complaining about things that I'm sure are legitimate, but you don't necessarily see that around the country. Yeah, I think it would be an interesting discussion if we had, and maybe you know, it sounds better in theory as I think it through than it maybe would actually be in, in process about what are the tougher beats for a co- head coach to walk into and what are the more favorable ones. You know, Because I think those do factor into not only say a coach's success, but how a coach is perceived because a lot of times you see those reactions on social media and that's the things that tend to get passed around, you know. Should we get to the mailbag? Okay. It's the mailbag from a computer, so not literally a bag, but just mail. As always, you can send your questions to the Audible Pod at gmail.com. Somebody wrote in and said we need to better publicize that email address, but I feel like if you listen to the podcast, how many times do we have to say it? The Audible Pod, all one word, at gmail.com. Hey, guess who pops up right at the top? I know. He should get a paycheck from Fox Sports. As soon as I was like, wow, this is a good question, and then I like, kept scrolling down. I'm like, oh, it's a Jason Gorlewski question. So. Yeah, well, he asks good questions. There's no question about that. Uh, Bruce and Stewart. Which coach in his second year with his current team is most likely to have his program make, quote, the leap? Clay Helton, Coach O, Mark Richt, Justin Fuente, what are your thoughts? Uh, a couple of things. You know, I wouldn't put Ogeron in that lump because it's really his first year as a head coach. So I wouldn't put him in there. You know, when I first saw that, the first name that came to mind wasn't Mark Richt. It was actually the guy who followed Mark Richt. Mark Richt went nine and four. I mean, Clay Helton won. I think Clay Helton has a chance to to take a step forward um, from where they were. But they still, you know, they still won the Rose Bowl. Uh, so here's – I think I maybe looked at guys – Let's start with Kirby Smart. They were eight and five. That's a down year by Georgia, but it wasn't an awful year. Uh, Seventeen starters back. Almost everybody, you know, on defense, with the possible exception. We'll see what happens with Trent Thompson, the big defensive lineman. They get Nick Chubb back. That's a huge thing. Jacob Eason, second year in the system. I think that's an interesting place. Uh, a couple other ones. Dino Babers. I think because they were yeah, only that's four a good and eight. One. Yeah. Only four and eight. They have, I think, more starters back than anybody. 20 starters. Their quarterback is pretty good, Eric Dungy. The young kid they brought in from, from New Jersey is really good, too. Uh, you know, that system, I think, is a very interesting fit. So 
you know, I would I kind of throw him in there. Can I make um, a really bold prediction here in on March 9th? Oh man, please tell me you're saying the Cuse is going to go to the playoff. That would be as bold as we're going to ever get on this podcast. Well, it's no, but it's pretty bold. I'm going to say right now that Dino Babers and that air raid, uh, not air, the bear, the Baylor offense is going to next season beat one of Florida State, Clemson, or Louisville. Okay. I don't think it's going to be Florida State, but... <laughs> Probably not. I don't think so, I say one but... of the big... Because they're in that division. One of the big three in their division. Okay, uh, mark it down. Yeah. On March 9th. And how many wins do you think? So you think Syracuse wins at least nine games next year? I, do we have to play the schedule game with them too? No, you don't. I just want you to say Syracuse will go win at least nine. I, I No, I think minimum seven. It's going to be one of those seasons that you often see with a relatively new coach and a and a interesting system where they win games you thought they were never going to win and they lose games they have no business losing. Yeah, one other who I think will have a pretty big year, although he won eight games last year, Mike Norvell. Uh, they got a ton back on offense. I think he is a rising star in coaching. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how much more they'll win, but I think they'll be a little better. I could see them making a run at the – AAC title. Also, like what Scott Frost has done at UCF. Let me ask you this: Would you be at all surprised if I told you that Virginia ends up improving its win total quite a bit in Bronco Men and Hall second season? No, I wouldn't, because they were they were really bad last year, and I think you and I both agree he's a pretty good coach. So keep an eye uh, on that. You know, I think that's a pretty good league. I mean, I know they lost some good quarterbacks. I still think there's good players in there. Right. It'll be interesting because they had such great quarterbacks last year. And, of course, we talked about them being possibly the best conference in the country last year. I thought they were. But then you're going to lose all those quarterbacks. So who will be the top returning quarterback in the ACC next year? Uh, I don't know. I keep – I mean, DeAndre Francois I think will be really good. Yeah, that's what, I'm, that's what I'm thinking is that it will be him. Where did you put Florida State, by the well, way? Well, that's the thing. I'm a little gun-shy after <laughs> picking – Where did you put them last year? You don't remember? No, no, no. I mean, go, you know, like at the end of, you know, you do your early top 25. Uh, yeah, I had them in the top five. Okay. So you could put them in the playoff right now. Yeah, they're definitely, they're definitely going to be in the mix, especially since I think you and I both would be shocked if Clemson makes the playoff in the first year post Deshaun Watson. I'm just looking up the ACC quarterbacks and who's coming back. Um, not Nathan Peterman. Oh, uh, okay. Not Peterman, not Trubisky, not Evans, not Watson, not Kaya. Uh, the top returning quarterback in the ACC, of course, is the returning Heisman Trophy winner, and Lamar, uh, yeah. Yeah, Lamar Jackson. But uh, after that, it would be DeAndre Francois or Eric Dungy or maybe Ryan Finley. Yeah. I mean, I ran into Steve Jones. He's the beat guy for the Louisville paper. And so I talked to him at the Combine about Louisville. And, uh, man, it just felt like the air came out of there. Not only did they flounder at the end of the regular season, they looked really bad. They got, like, pummeled in the bowl game. Um, yeah, it just, whatever they were able to do, maybe Lamar Jackson was able to mask how bad that offensive line was for most of the season, but it just gave out at the end. I'm looking at this list of the ACC passing leaders from last season. And I see at the very bottom 13th, John Wolford for Wake Forest, who is already, I think a three-year starter already, and is still the lowest rated passer in the uh, ACC. I bring that up because last night, the night before recording this in the Wake Forest basketball game, uh, their six foot seven guy at the halftime buzzer, just threw the ball to the basket from 80 feet away, swished it. Mm. Uh Uh-huh. Does he have eligibility left? Could he play quarterback next season? It's a different shaped ball still. Uh, Why don't we go to this next question? 
Um, so we talked about this with the Combine last week. It's from David Cowley. We talked about how these a lot of these guys, 40 times or whatnot, while they're in college, and then suddenly they get to the Combine, and they're not as fast anymore. Yeah, so you want to read it, because I've kind of done a little bit of number crunching on some okay. of this. So he's a Louisville guy, speaking of Louisville. I went back and looked at a couple of the numbers Louisville put out on wide receivers James Quick and Jamari Staples and combined them to the numbers they ran at last week's Combine. So per Louisville, last spring... Jamari Staples ran a 4.39, jumped 40 and a half inches, and broad jumped 10 feet 11 inches. At the combine, he ran a 4.51, jumped 36 inches, and broad jumped 10.10, all lower across the board. James Quick's drop-off was even steeper, running just a 4.6 at the combine, despite being listed as a 4.39 guy the previous spring by Louisville. My question is why? Why would a school put inflated, unrealistic numbers out on its players only for them to inevitably disappoint at the combine? You know, there's a couple things here. So I remember hearing for years, both Penn State, I want to say, and Virginia Tech had these, you know, super fast 40 times. People were like, okay, what kind of surface are they running on? And you'd hear for traditionally the combine was a slower surface. Now, you don't hear that that much anymore. But I will say there's a couple of things that I think are valid uh, explanations. One, when you talk to guys who are at the combine, they are worn out. You know, it's like, and this is not an exaggeration. There are guys who get spend 10 hours getting pulled and poked and prodded just on the medical exam. And it's not a shock that like Reuben Foster, you know, or somebody got pissed off about it. So I do think there's kind of a, a wear and tear from it. But in terms of the numbers, and this was just because he was the fastest guy at the combine, but I looked up at Washington. So last year, John Ross ran a hand-timed 4.2540. And the year before that, in 2014, he was 4.29. Now, when you see the term hand-time, that almost screams out, okay, this is a fast time. But the reality was John Ross ran 4.22. If you look at some of the other numbers that – and Washington, their numbers looked fast. Now, Buda Baker did not run as fast at the combine as he did the year before. Buda ran 4.35, according to them. He was a full tenth slower than that. But I looked up at some of these other numbers, and it's not just the 40 times. You know, you have Kevin King ran really well at the combine, may have run faster at the combine than he did at Washington, ran 4.43. You know, his other numbers, the shuttle numbers, were almost identical. Buda Baker's shuttle numbers, almost identical. I think it's a case where people can find examples where guys may have been way off. But then there's other things where it's like, you know, this guy's pretty similar. And you know, because I can I can say this the day before he worked out and the biggest, you know, freak guy at the combine, no surprise, was Miles Garrett. You know, Miles told me in training he'd run four four three. He told me that the day before he ran, and then he ran four six four. Now his vertical jump was higher than what he had done. You know, he said, I think I can do forty, and then he goes out and does forty one. So I think it's a lot of splitting hairs, to be honest. That's my you know, explanation. Because like I said last time, you know, Marcus Hunt had the craziest numbers I've ever seen. And he pretty much backed him up almost to the hundredth of a second when he went to Indy. Is it just possible that some schools are better at timing guys? And this isn't some sort of intentional um, manipulating that just some schools are better at timing than others. Yeah, I think there's a little of that. I'll say this too. You know, one of the guys I talked to before I did that combine freaks list was Tony Villani. He's one of the top strength and speed coaches in the country. He works out some of the fastest guys, gets them ready for the combine and has done it for years, had some guys who put up crazy numbers there. And he said, don't expect Alvin Cook to run in the four threes. And 
he was right. Dalvin Cook had kind of underwhelming numbers. He ran four four nine. His vertical jump wasn't anything awe-inspiring or anything like that. You know, he's like, he's super football fast, but sometimes the testing isn't the same. Now, he did say keep an eye on Jalen Myrick from Minnesota. And Jalen Myrick ran a crazy fast time. He ran four two eight. And that kind of flew under the radar because of what John Ross did. I mean, there are some other guys on the opposite end of the spectrum. I mean, there was no buzz out of UConn. I mean, there was a little bit, but Obi Mellon Fonwu, I mean, 6'4", almost 225. And the 4.40 is one thing, but the guy almost broad jumped 12 feet, and he vertical jumped 44 inches. So can I ask you something? Mm-hmm. If we we're talking about a cornerback or linebacker, I would understand why you wouldn't really know how fast they're going to run for sure until you see the 40 time. Dalvin Cook is fast. <laughs> Watch a Florida State game. He's really fast. So does it really matter what his 40 time is? It depends on the team. I think I don't think it matters much. No, to me, it doesn't matter. I think you see enough from Dalvin Cook to go, I'm not worried whether he runs 449 or 441. He's really fast. Right. You know, but if there's some other running backs, I mean, I'd be a little concerned when a running back from Wisconsin runs 468 or when Wayne Gallman runs in the mid four sixes and doesn't show a ton of explosiveness. Listen, all of this is just confirming why I don't pay any attention to the combine. <laughs> it's just it's interesting. You and I could not be more opposite. We, we have a lot in common. There's a lot of common interests. But, man, do we diverge on this thing. You love it. I find it pointless. Yeah, but you also don't like the NFL either. Hey, but you know what? I saw you tweeting with Dan Rubenstein about food, and, and he was making fun of you because you always go to the counter. You know, that that's your idea of gourmet food. But I'm going to defend you. That's not the idea of my gourmet food. Fuck you. That's not my <laughs> gourmet food. All I know is when I it used to be when I've come to town and we want to get for lunch, you would always want to go to the counter. And in fact, I think you said on this podcast, it's because you don't normally get to go because it's not really something the family wants to do. And what I'm going to tell you here is I never got it. But now that we have a one-year-old, we have actually gone twice in the last couple of weeks because she loves to play with the crayons, and look out the window and it's the kind of food we can eat while also holding her. So, yeah, we're big fans of the counter now. Yeah. By the way, I never said I was a gourmet. I, that's not me. If you're taking me to some fancy, fancy place or, you know, something like that, you're wasting your money. That's not me. So, Okay, Stu, this next question is from Derek Johnson, Stu and Bruce. In discussing ADs around the country, I was wondering which athletic directors articulated the best vision for their respective programs. One of my current gripes with the AD in my program, Nebraska's Sean Eichhorst, is he gives few personable interviews and issues press releases in crisis. It's a real downer when your previous AD was Tom Osborne. I think one of the best ADs at articulating is Mark Hollis at Michigan State. He has a great personal story, and it helps in getting MSU alums on board. Would enjoy hearing the two of you discuss it. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you, Derek. Uh, Stu, take it. I mean, first of all, I've heard that same thing about Sean Eichhorst, and and I was thinking about that before we get to Hollis. I think maybe in an earlier time, the AD could be a mostly behind-the-scenes person. But I think in this day and age, I mean, I would think it should be a huge part of the AD's job to be connected to the fans. And you see that a lot with a Jeff Long or... Uh, who's Chris Del Conte. Yeah, they're interacting with fans on Twitter every day. Uh, Scott Strickland was like that Mississippi State. Um, this is your customer. This is your your whole well, also existence. Also, think about where... Yeah. And I, I, Derek didn't say where he's from, but he's a Nebraska guy. 
I mean, you're basically the only game in the state there. There's not the Chicago Bears or anything like that. So I don't want to say that's the wrong tack to take. I don't want to be critical of Sean like that. But I do Uh, think – I think it's it's definitely the wrong tack to take. uh, Yeah, I think you're doing your your customers a disservice if you're not that way. And I I do think – Again, you know, I'm a, you know, when I go do games, you see which ADs are visible. Um, I think Jeff Long was a great example that you said right out of the gate of somebody who's like that and is, and is well respected for it. I mean, I know there's probably some playoff fans who are not thrilled about because he's the face of it or was. But I think in terms of this question, yeah, I think it's definitely an example of that. And I think to his point, it gives you a little bit of leeway. If you are personable and relate to the fans, then it gives you a little bit of leeway if there is a crisis that you have to address, which we're going to get to here in a second. Whereas it seems like you've got something to hide. If you're very secretive to begin with, then that's not going to go well. So why don't you talk about Hollis? Yeah, so right now, there's obviously a scandal going on there. Um, and there's been a lot. Multiple scandals. Multiple scandals, yeah. And I'll be honest, this is one that I've not followed closely enough you know, in the other sports to know how proactive he's been and what he's done in the media towards, you know, the way Derek is, is talking about it. Is that satisfactory or is there more stuff coming? Cause it feels like it, it should be getting more national attention. And I don't know. Is well, it- there's certain subjects, right. That you would understand if the guy's not able to like hold a press conference and talk candidly about it. If you're talking about a sexual assault investigation, you know, there's going to be limitations there. But, you know, the two things I would say is to answer your question on proactive, this is not a Baylor situation. When they found out about the allegations, they immediately started investigating them. Uh, I'm talking about the football one. The gymnastics thing is so massive and so... Right. That's the one I was referring to. How much is, how much of that though? I mean, it's on his watch. It's on his watch, but it's also goes way beyond Michigan State. I mean, this guy was doing this for decades with USA Gymnastics I, I don't know. I, I don't know if feel comfortable saying whether or not he was proactive enough on that. Uh, it's obviously a huge national scandal, but it you know he is a Michigan State team doctor. So we'll reserve judgment on that. But one thing that he did that I thought was important, he's the NCAA basketball committee chairman this year. And mm-hmm. He's somebody who you see kind of mentioned out in the public a lot. He was going to do this big two-week like tour. They were going to drive around the country in an RV and go watch college basketball games. And he when, with the seriousness that was going on, he canceled that. Um, so, but he's still busy. I mean, obviously, he's there all week this week if you're dealing with it. But that's a whole other story for another time. Like, should AD, sitting ADs be on these committees? And does it distract too much from their day jobs? And what you're talking about was tour. I think it was something around signing day. That's the timing of it. It was like 12 states in 12 days. Yeah. But, you know, it's significant. Three football players at Michigan State and somebody on staff were suspended for a sexual assault investigation that was going on in addition to the head of the women's gymnastic team and former team doctor. Um, That's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff going on in Michigan State in addition to, obviously, the poor season they had on the football field last year. So I got to get back to the basketball. You've got to get to a lunch date or something. So we're going to wrap it up. Hey, I was staying here. You're shooing me off the phone right now. But uh, okay, Stu, what do people need to do to subscribe to the Audible? Uh, You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, Google Play, SoundCloud. Subscribe on one of those. And as always, send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.